0: Welcome everyone to another Legends of Surgery podcast. I'm David Sigmund, your host for this episode. Today, we're going to be discussing Dr. Nikolai Ivanovich Piragov. Dr. Piragov was a Russian surgeon in the 1800s and is considered the father of military field surgery. I must give special thanks in this episode to <laughs> the College of Physicians of Philadelphia which is not actually a college, but rather the oldest private medical society in the United States, and also the home of the Mutter Museum, a very impressive collection of historical archives and medical specimens that I cannot recommend highly enough to visit if you are a fan of the history of medicine. The college also has an amazing collection of historical medical books, including Dr. Pierogov's autobiography named Questions of Life, Diary of an Old Physician. In the foreword of this book, Dr. Pirogov wrote that his book was addressed exclusively to myself, but not without an ulterior motive that, perhaps someday, someone else may also read it. Dr. Pirogov was born in 1810 in Moscow, the 13th out of 14 children of a middle-class family. One of his earliest memories was of meeting Dr. Ephraim Osipovich Makin, and this left quite an impression on him and was a significant inspiration in Pirogov's eventual choice to join the medical field. Piragov was a young boy when one of his older brothers became bedridden with rheumatic fever. Even after multiple visits from multiple doctors, there was no improvement in his brother's condition, and Piragov mentions how the moans and screams from his brother echoed throughout the whole household. Finally, his mother managed to get Dr. Muckin, whom Piragov refers to as probably the best medical practitioner in Moscow, who promptly cured the brother, with Piragov saying the improvement was, as if by magic. Pirogov even remembered the treatment, saying, The moment Ephraim Osipovich looked at the patient, he immediately told my mother, Send someone right now, madame, to the chandlery store and get sarsaparilla roots, and tell him to choose one that, when broken up, becomes powdery. It has to be carefully boiled in a utensil thoroughly sealed with dough, and it should be steamed for a long time, and at that very moment, place it in a sulfuric bath. This treatment, while not one I would recommend today, fully cured Piragov's brother, and set Piragov on a path that would eventually lead him to become a legend of surgery. Piragov began his formal schooling at about 12 years old at a private boarding school not far from his home. At school, he was taught multiple languages, geometry, algebra, history, and religion, although he did not put much stock in this last one, despite his religious upbringing by two very devout parents. During his time at school, a number of tragedies befell young Piragov and his family. First, one of his older sisters died after giving birth to a child. Then, one of his brothers died of measles. And then, another brother lost a great deal of money playing cards, which we contribute to Pyrogav refusing to play games of chance after seeing what a gambling addiction could do. And finally, the disaster which Pyrogav said ruined us all. For his father was a treasurer in the military, and one of his underlings stole 30,000 rubles and disappeared. Piragov's father was eventually held responsible, and his family's estate had to pay the full amount out of their own money. Piragov's father retired in disgrace from the military after this, and the family soon ran up significant enough debt that they could no longer afford Piragov's schooling, so he left school at around 14 years of age. However, his father knew what a talented student Piragov was and was loath to end his education, and therefore once again called on the family friend, Dr. Malkin who was a professor of anatomy and physiology at Moscow University, who assisted in getting Piragov into the school by setting him up with private tutors to prepare young Piragov sufficiently for the entrance exams. Piragov described the exams as quite stressful for him, comparing them to a soldier going into a life-or-death battle. He aced the exams and was promptly accepted, with his father taking him out for chocolate and pastries after. This was all the more impressive considering the standard age for acceptance to Moscow University was 16, and Pirogov was only 14, and therefore had to lie about his age to sit the exams. Pirogov's tales of his studies are fascinating, as he seemed to take an equal amount of lessons from his formal lectures at school, as well as from the musings of his classmates and roommates in a more informal setting. He frequently references room number 10, that is his dormitory room at the university, as the site of much of his learning with his friends, and it is here he began to question the dogma of some of his previous learnings, describing his friends as... A den of nihilists who questioned everything. He described his curiosity expanding during this time, including sneaking some pilfered human bones from his anatomy lab. He describes taking them home where his childhood nanny saw him with the bones, which led to her weeping and saying, Oh my God, what a fearless person you've become. Guessing something was maybe a bit lost there in the translation from 18th century Russian. Less than a year into university, yet another tragedy accosted Pyrogoth and his family when his father died suddenly possibly of a stroke. Despite all these tragedies, Pyrogav continued to excel in his studies, being awarded his medical degree at only 17 years of age. Despite having his degree, Pyrogav was not satisfied with his medical education and it has primarily focused on lectures, with Pyrogav noting he had not performed a single autopsy or human dissection during his time at the university. Luckily in 1827, the University of Dorpat, now called the University of Tartau, was open for postgraduate training of Russian professionals, and Piragov was awarded a scholarship due to his excellent academic record. The university was one of the best in Europe at the time, being staffed by German physicians and scientists, and with classes being taught in German, despite the school being in Estonia. Piragov was talented enough that his professors even gave him money in order to fund his purchase of dogs and calves for dissections in order to further develop his surgical skills. This has made all the more impressive that only 20 Russian students a year were allowed to be accepted into the school, and Pirogov was one of them. While there, he studied surgery and anatomy under Dr. Johann Christian Moyer, who was himself a student of the Italian surgeon Antonio Scarpa, of Scarpa's fascia fame. By 1829, Pirogov was being excused from all lectures so that he could focus on his dissections and experiments, Uh, most importantly one including the treatment of inguinal artery aneurysms by ligation of the aorta. Pirogov conducted a series of experiments in animals where he would gradually tighten a suture around the aorta in order to improve and develop collateral flow around the affected area and thus reduce flow into the aneurysm sac, while still not inducing paralysis and tissue loss in the areas below the aneurysm. Finally, he conducted these experiments in humans and in 1831, Pyrghov gave his graduating dissertation on the treatment of inguinal artery aneurysms called, and please forgive my Latin here, nom victura Aorte abdominalis and aneurismate inguinale ad facile sic ad tutum remedi. After graduation, Pyrghov moved to Berlin to further study anatomy and surgery at the Charity University Hospital. He wrote of this time in his diary, the period of my life in Berlin was a period of transition in German medicine as well as for myself. However, despite the field of medicine advancing drastically at the time, Piragov noted, the professors did not use dissection, although they believed in it. And he mentions most of his professors at the time knew nothing of anatomy except for one, a doctor named Conrad Langenbeck. Dr. Langenbeck taught Piragov how to be efficient with his movements in surgery to conserve energy, with Piragov quoting him as saying on the effective use of scalpels, do not pressure the scalpel, but move it slowly, playing it as a bow over a violin. Given that most surgeons at the time eschewed dissections, Piragov used this as an opportunity to conduct hundreds of dissections while in Berlin. Piragov felt that dissection was the critical way to learn anatomy and become an effective surgeon, saying, it is advisable that only someone who is familiar with the body, the position of the organs in their unaltered state, and the painful changes that can come to them should operate on a person. Piragov traveled back to Russia in 1835 and was shocked to discover that one of his former classmates had been named the chair of surgery at Moscow University. Pirogov was greatly frustrated by this news, as he considered himself to be a much superior surgeon to his former schoolmate, but his frustration turned to joy upon his return to Dorpot, as he learned his former teacher, Dr. Moyer, was retiring and planned to name Pirogov as his successor. Thus, at the youthful age of 26, Pirogov became a professor of surgery at the University of Dorpat. While there, Piragov became famous for his tireless work ethic, chairing several departments while also continuing both his experimental dissections and his clinical practice. He wrote in his diary, six hours a day was not enough time for teaching, so I devoted eight hours to it. If the same amount of time is taken for sleep, there are eight hours left for research and surgical practice. That he didn't mention eating in that maxim surely resonates with surgeons everywhere, although maybe not the part about eight hours of sleep. During this time, he also published a full anatomical atlas with 50 pages of illustrations, a study of the Achilles tendon, and a textbook in German named Annalen de Klischen Surgery, or Annals of Clinical Surgery. Excuse my German there as well. Pirogov wrote in its preface, I consider it my sacred duty to openly inform the public about my medical activities and their results. As an always honest man, especially as a teacher, you must have some sort of inner need to disclose your mistakes to warn others. He also supervised a dozen scientific theses by his students over this time. When he turned 30, Piragov left the University of Dorpat to become the chair of surgery at St. Petersburg Medical Surgical Academy, where he declared his goal was to assist in raising the medical arts in our country to a level equal to that of the advanced countries of Europe. But Piragov was not satisfied with merely being a didactic professor like so many of his own instructors. He demanded that as part of his position, He also had clinical duties, and after strenuous negotiations, was appointed director of the surgical department of the St. Petersburg Army Hospital. Pyrogav would work in these positions for 14 years, not only as a teacher at the academy and a surgeon at the army hospital, but also while maintaining a private practice from his home. During his time in St. Petersburg, he would perform around 12,000 autopsies, keeping detailed records of them all. He also used Russia's notoriously cold winters to freeze the bodies, then used a combination of saws, hammers, and chisels to create frozen cross-sections and better understand human anatomy. I'm glad we have CT scans for those cross-sectional images now, but that was a good way he could do it himself. He used the information he gathered to create one of his greatest works, the Atomia Topographia, a five-volume opus on human anatomy published in 1843 which became one of the standard textbooks of anatomy not only in Russia, but throughout Europe. This led to many Pyrogov-named structures, including the Pyrogov angle, which occurs at the junction of the internal jugular and subclavian veins, the Pyrogov aponeurosis, which is the combination of the biceps aponeurosis and its investing fascia, and the Pyrogov triangle, an area located between the mylohyoid muscle, the intermediate tendon of the digastric muscle, and the hypoglossal nerve. Pirogov also uses time to investigate an emerging technology, anesthesia. Recall from episode 2, The Ether Dome and the Beginnings of Modern Surgery, that the use of ether as anesthesia for surgical oper- operations was introduced in the Ether Dome at Massachusetts General Hop- Hospital on October 16, 1846, forever changing the field of surgery. In 1847, just a few months after the discovery in Boston, Pirogov published, and please excuse my French, which is the language Pirigov published this particular paper in, Researches Pratiques et Physiologique sur l'Etherization. In this paper, Pirigov reported performing 50 operations, 45 quote-unquote experiments on humans, including some on himself, and 45 experiments on animals using ether as an anesthetic. Later in that same year, Pirigov would go to the Caucasus, where a war was going on between the Russian Empire and the Caucasian Emirate. Of note, famed Russian writer Leo Tolstoy was involved in this war, and his experiences in it were crucial to him writing his masterpiece, War and Peace. Pyrogav would apply the knowledge he learned during his experiments to the field, where he performed hundreds of surgeries on soldiers under anesthesia, this being the first recorded time soldiers were spared the terror of being operated on without anesthesia after being wounded. Pyrogav treated soldiers from the Russian or Caucasian side with the same level of care, with soldiers from all sides being anesthetized as best as possible, despite a limited supply of ether and the general difficulties of war. Upon his return to St. Petersburg, Piragov once again resumed working at his typical frenetic pace, where in addition to continuing his previously mentioned duties, he founded an institute of anatomy at his university, before also founding a museum of anatomy and pathology as well. He also continued his research, inspired by his time in the caucus, where cholera was rampant among soldiers, and he published The Pathological Atlas of Asiatic Cholera in Russian and French. In 1854, he published a monograph, which he described the use of plaster of Paris in simple and compound bone fractures as applied in the transport of wounded soldiers on the battlefield, and also his method of amputation at the ankle level, known as the Piragov Operation. Both techniques were widely spread and quickly adopted across all of Europe, as they were far superior to previous methods. However, all these accomplishments were a prelude to what he's best known for, his work during the Crimean War. The Crimean War was fought on the Crimean Peninsula between the Russians and the English, the French, and Ottomans. It is where Florence Nightingale, in episode 16, made a name for herself, and also where she met the remarkable James Stuart Barry, episode 84. Pirogov called this war a military trauma for all participants and a national calamity for Russia. When the war started, Pyrogov immediately volunteered his services as a battlefield surgeon, but was denied. It was only when a family friend, the Grand Duchess Alina Pavlovna, interceded on his behalf that he was allowed to volunteer as a surgeon and also as the head of a unit of female nurses, which was novel at the time. Pyrogov's letter home from the war speak to the shocking trauma in one of the world's first modern wars, which saw the widespread use of explosive naval shells, railways, indirect artillery fire, trench warfare, and telegraphs as new instruments and inventions to increase the destructive capability of warfare. The famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, by Lord Alfred Tennyson, was written during this war, highlighting the carnage that could occur when old-fashioned tactics, like the charge of a horse-mounted light cavalry brigade, met modern rifles and artillery, with 270 casualties occurring out of the 670 men in that brigade. Here are some excerpts from Piragov's letters. From 8 in the morning to 6 in the evening I remained in the hospital, where rivers of blood were flowing. Over 4,000 wounded. We can hear the explosions of bombs and shells. There is so much to do. We travel on horseback to hospitals and back, covered in blood, sweat, and mud." Another letter reads, The Battle of Inkerman cost the Russians 11,000 dead and over 6,000 wounded. I found over 2,000 wounded huddled in filthy quilts soaked in blood. We worked for 10 days to sort them and separate those who needed urgent operations. Many should have been operated on shortly after the battle. There had been utter confusion when, to the 6,000 more wounded were added, and yet no schedule for evacuations or transportations had been prepared in advance. In another letter he writes to his wife that he had so much work to do he simply stopped ever undressing, day or night, saying if he was ever captured at least he would have his uniform on. His time in the Crimean War led him to write his greatest work, Principles of War Surgery, published first in German in 1864, which became the standard field manual for battlefield surgery until the introduction of antibiotics almost a century later. Pyrgov summarized his philosophy on battlefield surgery thusly, War is a trauma epidemic. The priority in the treatment of patients in war should not be assigned to medicine nor to surgery, but to an efficient administration. Battlefield casualties are to be evacuated, classified, and isolated as quickly as possible. Seriously injured patients should be removed to distant locations immediately. Pyragov also introduced the idea of triaging those wounded in combat, creating four groups of which he wrote, Group 1, the hopeless. They are left to the care of priests and nurses. Group 2, those who required urgent operation. Group 3, those who required an operation, but one which could wait a day or two. They are to be evacuated to nearby hospitals. And Group 4, Those slightly injured but able to walk, after treatment, they can be returned to their units. Another advance Pyrogav made during this time was to avoid indiscriminate amputations, since at the time, amputation was the standard of care for even moderately damaged extremities. Pyrogav took his previous experience from the caucus and created casts for wounded limbs and put this into widespread application in the Crimean War, thus saving many limbs from unnecessary amputation. In a later war, which he also served, the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 to 78, Piragov would note with pride that the Russian military had as many patients placed in casts as they performed primary amputations. And in a recurring theme we see here on Legends of Surgery, he was well ahead of his time in pursuing hygiene and antisepsis, demanding that physicians wash their hands thoroughly, particularly before trying to extract bullets or shrapnel. He states some Principles of War Surgery, the reader should not fail to become convinced that I believe in hygiene. This will be the basis of the progression of our science. The future belongs to preventative medicine. As I previously mentioned, Pirogov was named not only a battlefield surgeon in the Crimea, but also head of a group of female nurses. Using civilian nurses as battlefield nurses had been suggested by the Grand Duchess, who interceded to get him into the war, as a way to supplement military hospital staff. The grand duchess suggested calling them, and excuse my Russian, or sisters of mercy. They were invaluable to Pirigov, and in one of his letters home he wrote, a group of sisters arrived a few days ago and started work with zeal. They turned the hospital upside down and took care of food, drinks, distributed tea and wine. They were just marvelous. If this continues, if their fervor does not subside, then our hospital will take on a new image. While Florence Nightingale is given credit for introducing female trauma nurses for war, Pyrogav's Sisters of Mercies were actually founded first. However, history, and even Pyrogav himself, gives credit to Florence Nightingale as her work was much more successful and widely accepted, due in part to more acceptance and support for the idea of female nurses among the British military than in the Russian military. Pirogov's nurses were highly motivated and well-educated, and proved themselves to be invaluable in treating the wounded, despite women's rights being quite limited in Tsarist Russia. On women's rights, Pirogov wrote home this, Opponents of the emancipation of women affirm that there are great differences between the sexes, such as the brain which is smaller in the females, and so on and so forth. This should not be relied upon. It holds no water. If a woman is brought up and educated properly, she is just as capable as a man of adopting scientific, artistic, and social culture. Another organization born from the chaos of the Korean War was the Red Cross, with its founder, jean Henry Durant, crediting Pirogov for his facilitating his visits to the battlefield, which inspired him. Pirogov's biographer would write of the two men, Pirogov's role in the matter of private assistance in war is not only outstanding, it is unique. I dare say that in the history of private help in war, the name Piragov may be placed on the same level as that with Durant. Piragov was not only the originator of this humanitarian institution, but also one of its builders. For a quarter of a century, he was devoted to it with an unusual zeal, persistence, and love. Piragov himself said that his inspiration to go to the Crimean was out of humanitarian rather than professional interest, writing, those who think I went to Sevastopol just to cut off arms and legs are grossly mistaken. I have done that before and in great numbers. The Crimean War also gave Pirogov an interesting connection to American surgeons. Given that the war for American independence had ended less than 100 years before, and the War of 1812 had ended less than 50 years prior, there was still a fair amount of animosity in the United States against the British. This led to 36 American doctors volunteering to serve with the Russian forces, with most of them working under Dr. Pirogov during the Siege of Sevastopol. They worked hand in hand with Pirogov through the chaos, with many of them becoming ill and some dying. Some would go on to teach later at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, and many would use the experience they gained with Dr. Piragov during the American Civil War. Upon the conclusion of the war on Crimea, Russian Emperor Alexander II started a series of reforms across all spheres of Russian life. Piragov thus resigned his position at the Medico-Surgical Hospital and traveled around Russia attempting to assist in reformist views Practices on education in particular were an area of focus for him. He was noted to visit small towns and hamlets, sometimes sleeping on floors, to discuss educational and philosophical details with local educators. He was eventually given a position in Kiev to help with educational reform, but his liberal views often put him at odds with the entrenched bureaucracy, and he was pushed into early retirement at the age of 46. During his retirement banquet in Kiev, he said, Here on earth there is one incontrovertible truth and that is to serve an idea. He who has not forgotten his own youth, and who has studied the youth of others, cannot fail to detect in it the striving for noble ideas. He cannot fail to discover in it manifestations of that grave battle which the spirit of men must wage on the path to truth and perfection." His retirement was short-lived, however, as he was invited to work in Berlin and Heidelberg in Germany from 1862 to 1864 as a visiting scholar. By 1866, he returned to Russia and was put in charge of supervising universities and medical schools. However, an attempt on the life of the emperor by a student in 1866 led to a restructuring of the Russian university system, since it was thought the liberal views of many professors were leading to radicalized students. He again was forced to retire, and moved to a farm in the countryside of Vinitsa, where he treated local villagers free of charge, saying, Every one of us should, from time to time, re-examine himself as to how and to what extent he is proceeding toward the inaccessible goal of the elevated and the sacred. I have made it a rule never to demand anything from my patients, no matter how rich they are. I accept that which is given to me with the idea that I am not being paid for my labor, but for my time. I have valued my calling and my skill too highly to see in it as a means of acquiring wealth. Yet the tireless Pirogov could not stay retired, and in 1870 he was invited by the expanding Red Cross to inspect the medical establishments of the German army during the Franco-Prussian War. In typical fashion, he expected 70 hospitals in five weeks and was pleased to see many of his teachings from the Crimean War have been adopted by the Germans, including effective transportation of the wounded, avoiding amputations when possible, and treating the wounded according to a structured triage system. He published a paper on his inspection and went into retirement in 1871. He came out of retirement a third time in 1877, as previously mentioned for the Russo-Turkish War, where he once again put his prodigious skill to the treatment of those wounded in battle. In 1881, Moscow University had a celebration of 50 years of Pyrogov contributing to medicine and science, and many famous surgeons, such as Theodore Belroth, attended. Belroth sent a note of congratulations, saying, to the revered master Nikolai Piragov, truth in lucidity and lucidity in thinking and feeling as in word, and deed are the steps on the ladder which lead men to the abode of the gods. To emulate you, the valiant and reliable guide, on this not always safe way will be my most zealous endeavor. Your sincerest admirer and friend, Theodore Bilroth. Piragov passed away on November 21st, 1881, and was mourned across Russia and all of Europe. In 1885, a society was organized in his honor to discuss advances in science and medicine. Sadly, the organization was shut down in 1918 when the Soviets took power, as a secret society of intellectuals was in opposition of communist ideals. It would not be until 1954 that his name was once again attached to education when the All-Union Society of Surgery established the Pyrogov Lectures. Today, Pyrogov is remembered for his incredible skill as a surgeon, educator, and philanthropist. As one of the world's preeminent battlefield surgeons, many of his theories, such as effective transport of the wounded and an advanced triage system, are still in use today in some form, making him truly a legend
1: of surgery. Okay, it's time in the episode for the latest installment of Suture Tales. In this episode of Suture Tales, I want to talk about something that we often hear about but probably haven't explored the full history behind. many of you may know that some of the tribes of South America once used, and some still do, poison-tipped arrows for hunting. Classically, the image is of a blow dart shot from a length of bamboo hitting the prey and it immediately becoming immobilized. This intrigued the early European explorers, and through investigation and experimentation, the poison curare was discovered. It wasn't long before the medical applications were realized and though no longer used in its original form, curare led to the neuromuscular blocking drugs that are a key pillar in anesthesia today. In fact, one source described modern anesthesia as a triad of narcosis, meaning putting the patient to sleep, analgesia, meaning having the patient feel no pain, and muscle relaxation, keeping the patient from moving during surgery. Now the earliest descriptions of the mysterious flying death were brought back to Europe by Spanish conquistadors. Peter Martyr Danghera wrote of the poisoned arrows in a book of letters written in 1516 entitled De Orb Novo, roughly translated as Concerning the New World. Within it, he describes natives attacking Spanish invaders, killing a number of men and horses, with their deaths preceded by a profound paralytic state. The famous English adventurer Sir Walter Raleigh for whom the city of Raleigh, North Carolina in the U.S. is named after, also mentions the poisoned arrows in his book Discovery of the Large, Rich, and Beautiful Empire of Guyana in 1596. And one of his lieutenants gave the poison a name, Urari, which has been speculated to be from a native language with "uria" meaning bird and eeyore meaning to kill. The next step in the discovery of Curari wasn't until the 18th century, when an English physician, Edward Bancroft, who had spent five years in South America, brought back samples of crude curare to England. Sir Benjamin Brody, an English physiologist and surgeon, showed that small animals could be kept alive after being injected with curare by inflating their lungs with bellows, a foreshadowing of its future use. He also noted that, while the animals stopped breathing, their hearts continued to beat, as curare does not affect cardiac muscle. Interestingly, Brody hypothesized that the poison could be used as a medicine, but thought it would be helpful in managing convulsive disorders, tetanus, and hydrophobia, which is literally the fear of water, a symptom of rabies. But the most interesting character in this story is Charles Waterton. Born into a wealthy family in Yorkshire, England, he left home at 1806 to manage a sugar estate owned by his uncle in South America. He began to explore deeper into British Guyana and preserved many of the animals he encountered. In fact, he taught his unique method of taxidermy to one of his uncle's slaves, a man named John Edmundstone. I tell you this because, after being freed, Edmundstone moved to Edinburgh, where he in turn taught a teenage Charles Darwin. Really. But that's not the interesting part. In his wanderings, Waterton also came across Karari, which he brought back to Europe, although he called it Wirali, which will be relevant in a minute. This was obtained from the Makushi tribe in the south of Guyana, near the border with Brazil. Waterton traveled around 400 miles by canoe, along with six natives, to reach the tribe and obtain the poison. Back in Europe, along with fellows of the Royal Society, he conducted a now famous experiment using donkeys. This occurred in 1814, and of interest, Sir Benjamin Brody, the surgeon who had previously experimented with Karari, was in the audience. This experiment involved three donkeys. The first was injected with Wirali in the shoulder and died within 12 minutes. The second had a tourniquet tied around its foreleg and then had warali injected below the tourniquet. It was alive and active for an hour until the tourniquet was released, after which it died within 10 minutes. The third donkey also appeared to have died after being injected with warali after 10 minutes, but was resuscitated with a bellows for four hours and went on to live in peace on Waterton's estate. The donkey was then named Waralia, and in honor of her role in the advancement of science, actually earned an obituary in the St. James Chronicle, a local paper, after her death in 1839, 25 years after the experiment. Okay, we do need to take a brief interlude to talk about the use of Karari in an attempted political assassination. During the First World War, a group of Adolamites meaning conscientious objectors to the war, plotted to kill the Prime Minister Lloyd George and Paymaster General Arthur Henderson. Luckily, their plot was leaked to the head of intelligence who dispatched a secret agent to infiltrate the group. He did so and was even given the task of the actual assassination and was provided an air gun with pellets and darts that had been dipped in karare. So where did they get it? One of the co-conspirators owned a chemist's shop with the plot thwarted, the accused were found guilty and sentenced to jail. Bizarre. Now that the amazing effects of this exotic poison were known, scientists continued to experiment to isolate the active ingredient, study its molecular structure, and understand its effect on neuromuscular physiology. Interestingly, the method of testing potency of a preparation of kare was by the rabbit head drop test, which is fairly self-explanatory. By the late 1930s, the pharmaceutical company E.R. Squibb & Sons standardized the first commercial preparation of curare, which was called intocostrin. But here's the weird part. Unlike most commercial medicines, which are produced for commercial sale after they've been shown to work on some type of disease, this was a medication looking for an application. It didn't take long, though, for someone to find a use for it. A neuropsychiatrist named A.E. Bennett is credited as the first to come up with one. At the time, psychiatric patients with severe depression or schizophrenia would undergo convulsive therapy induced by medications which would often lead to terrible injuries including fractures and dislocations. Bennett presented a film on the use of Kari in June of 1940 at the 91st annual session of the American Medical Association. An employee of Squibb named Lewis Wright saw the film and thought that the drug his company was working on might be of use to anesthesiologists. Now enter Dr. Harold Randall Griffith, an anesthesiologist at the Homeopathic Hospital in Montreal. He frequently used the drug cyclopropane for anesthesia, but wanted to be able to intubate patients that stopped breathing when on this drug. For this, he decided to try Karari to relax patients enough to place an endotracheal tube. On January 23, 1942, he and his resident, Dr. Enid Johnson, administered Karari to a young man undergoing an appendectomy. They reported their use of Criari in a series of 25 patients in July of 1942 with this introduction to the paper, quote, Every anesthetist has wished at times that he might be able to produce rapid and complete muscular relaxation in resistant patients undergoing general anesthesia, quote. But during World War II, American doctors stationed in England brought word of this new wonder drug to their British colleagues. The anesthesiologist John Halton of Liverpool persuaded an American friend in the bomber squadron station nearby to bring back Intel from the U.S. Along with Cecil Gray, Halton experimented with the drug and published his results in 1946, which became the basis of what became known as the Liverpool technique, the triad of narcosis, analgesia, and muscle relaxation we talked about at the beginning of this segment. I won't bore you with the details of further refining of the drug, but many of the drugs you may have heard of, like pancuronium, brocuronium, etc., are called curare mimetic drugs, essentially recreating its mode of action. So it was from these early beginnings of rumors of the flying death used by tribes deep in the jungles of South America way back in the 16th century from Spanish conquistadors that led to some of the most important drugs that we use today in modern operating rooms. Isn't that amazing?
0: That wraps up this episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope this episode inspires our listeners to the same heights as Dr. Pierre Please rate this podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there or follow us on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future episodes. Thanks for listening.